Open your Bibles to Psalm 52. Psalm 52, page 602, if you're using a Bible provided, there's one under a chair in the row in front of you, and uh, grab that, open it up, follow along in the Word of God. What is your refuge today? What is your refuge? Where do you run to for protection? Where do you turn for comfort and security? When the going gets tough, when things are difficult, when you are really struggling, what's your go-to? Good or bad, where do you turn? Where is your, or who is, or what is your refuge? We're going to dig into what the scripture says, but before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we need eyes to see and ears to hear. We need you to meet with us today that we might be transformed, that you might save souls. There are sinners who have not repented. May may they see the glory of Christ and turn to you. We've sung the gospel. May they have heard it. And for the believer, Lord, who is struggling, the believer who is wrestling uh, for our sins and the struggles that we have, Lord, may we see what we need to do today. May we repent May we continue to be transformed by the progressive sanctification of your Holy Spirit. May he do that work in us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 52, I will read, you follow along in your Bible. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is God's divine and very clear revelation. May we listen to it this morning. This is another song written specifically for corporate worship. Like last week's song, this was given to the choir master. It is a maskil. We're not sure what that is. Most likely, it's a, a song of instruction. It's a teaching song. And so we see the theme right as the title of the message, the steadfast love of God is our refuge. That's the theme. That's what this song is about. Now, the setting of this psalm is very specific. Uh, Not a lot of psalms have the setting given specifically, but here we see it specifically given. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. The narrative of that, the historical account, is found in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So if it's unfamiliar, you're not sure of what it's about, you can read it this afternoon in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. It won't take you a long time. 
But what is going on there is that David is running for his life. King Saul sees him as a threat to his throne and is trying to kill him. In his fleeing, David comes to a city called Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and asks for food. In doing so, David lies to Ahimelech, telling him that he's on a secret mission for the king. Ahimelech then gives him the bread of the presence, the special bread, the show bread for the tabernacle and the temple. And this has tremendous theological implications. Christ talks about that and uses this example in Matthew. We're not going to dig into that, but just keep that in mind. It's not the point of today's message. And so as he gives him this food, there just happened to be a servant of King Saul's there at that time. His name was Doeg the Edomite. He was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he's in charge of all the animals of the king, and he happens to be in Nob, uh, close to the tabernacle. He sees what is taking place at this time. So David not only gets bread, but he's also given Goliath's sword, and then he flees to the land of the Philistines. So then in chapter 22, when King Saul makes it known that David is conspiring against him, Doeg sees his moment of opportunity. He tells King Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now what Doeg says to King Saul here is a lie. It is slander. He had not inquired of the Lord on David's behalf. That did not happen. And that lie is slander because it puts Ahimelech in a conspiracy with David. And who is the enemy of King Saul? David. So the enemy of my enemy, the friend of my enemy is my, my enemy. So here we have this lie, this slander is putting Ahimelech in the crosshairs of a man who's very angry, King Saul. Now, every great slander includes some truth to give the slander justification. So the rest of what he said was true. He did give him bread, and he did give him Goliath's sword, but he did not do it as a conspirator. He did it in thinking that he was supporting someone who was on a secret mission for the king. So instead of painting this, this, this accurately in light of Ahimelech is helping David because he thinks he's helping the king, no, now Ahimelech is seen as a conspiracy, conspirator with David against King Saul. So, what does King Saul do? He summons Ahimelech and all his family and all the priests in Nam. And Saul asks Ahimelech, why have you conspired against me with David? Ahimelech denies the charge. He says, let not the king impute anything to his servant or the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I I don't have any idea what's going on. I, I didn't do that. But King Saul refuses to hear, does not believe him, and he commands his guards to kill the priests of the Lord. But the soldiers refuse to strike the priests of the Lord. So then the king says to Doeg, you kill the priests. So what does Doeg do? He does. He kills 85 priests of the Lord. And then he goes above and beyond, and he goes and slaughters the entire city of Nob, Man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. That's the occasion. In light of that occurrence, David writes this song. So when we're 
of what happens reaches David, David takes personal responsibility. He feels the great weight of such a terrible wickedness that is done in light of his own actions. And he writes this song. Now the question I have is, did he write this song shortly after it happened? Just, you know, this happens and then he thinks about it and he writes a song. Or is he writing this song long after it happened, after the judgment that this psalm talks about has been enacted on Doeg and on Saul? So sometimes we might read this where it says, um, this to the choir master, when Doeg the Edomite came, like he wrote it immediately thereafter, he might have. But in light of what this psalm says, I have an indication or an inclination that he wrote this long after the events when what is written here is more on the fulfilled side than on the promised side. And so in light of this occurrence, in light of who God is, this is God's judgment. It's a judgment psalm. And uh, this is the occurrence for what happened. So let's dig into the text now that we've built the context so you can understand what happened. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is the sin of the evil man recited. The sin of the evil man recited. Immediately in this song, David writes the wickedness, the specifics of the evil man and what he did. And the first thing he says is the evil man, he boasts of evil. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? Now, we don't see that in the text. So it appears that Doeg, after doing all this, went around boasting about how great he was, how he was a mighty man for serving King Saul in this way. He was boasting of what he had done. And David's response is, why are you boasting of evil? And he sarcastically calls this rancher, this chief herdsman, just a servant, and he calls him a mighty man. It's amazing that this man is boasting in killing the priests of the Lord. As you go back and read the account in 1 Samuel 22, no one would do what the king commanded. None of the other soldiers, the guards there, would lay a hand on the priest of the Lord, but this man picks up a sword and kills 85. Why wouldn't they touch the priest of the Lord? Because when you fear the Lord, you fear his priest and you treat his servants with tremendous respect. And I also want you just to see as an application, what do righteous people do when given wicked orders from a wicked king? Do we just follow orders because the king says? Do we just take Romans 13, which says obey those in authority over you, and they say kill the priest? You say, well, I have to. Romans 13 says I have to submit to the authorities over me. Got to kill the priest. What else are you going to do? No, these men interposed and said, no, they would not follow that command. They refused to obey the king. Now, they didn't put themselves and protect the priest, which they should have gone even farther, but at least they did not put their hand to killing him. But Doeg has no compunction. He has, he has no hesitancy whatsoever. He has no fear of God and slaughters the priests. And he boasts of it. Does he not recognize what he has done and the judgment he deserves? What do you think? Does he recognize it? Does he see it? Remind me of Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. 
Boasting in wickedness is a great evil. So go and contrast Doeg's response to what he had done to what David had done in his response in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and 52 back to back, we see one murderer repents and another murderer boasts. So notice the comparison. David murdered Uriah and he repents of this great evil. This man murdered 85 priests of the Lord and what does he do? He boasts of his evil. So notice the response. It is wicked to boast in evil. So that's what this is. This is this boasting of this evil man. But notice next... He sins with his tongue. So the first sin, the greatest wickedness, is his boasting of evil. But then we have the sins of the tongue. What has this man done with his tongue? He has plotted destruction. He loves to lie. He loves words that devour others. His tongue is completely deceitful. It is like a sharp razor that will swiftly and surely cut a man's throat. The idea is like those gangster movies where the man is getting the the haircut and the shave and he's in the barber's chair and the barber ends up slitting his throat. You like that? You didn't like that one? No. The peanut gallery is not impressed with that. That's the idea. It's a sharp razor. He's cutting a man's throat with a sharp razor. That's his tongue. His tongue is a weapon of evil to destroy. Doeg had perverted the facts. He'd lied regarding Ahimelech's conduct. He did it intentionally seeking Ahimelech's death. That's what David's saying here. His tongue was a sharp razor to destroy this man. He's plotting destruction. He's not just trying to advance himself, which of course he did. He wants Ahimelech dead for some reason. Now what I think is amazing here, he talks about this evil man boasting of evil, but what are the sins he refers to? It's amazing that he only mentions the sins of the tongue. He doesn't mention the murder of the priests, but the lying deception that led to it. What's worse? Slander, lies, deceit, plotting destruction, or murder? I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, I'm sure you've never said this, well, I've never killed anybody. You know, I'm not that bad. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. Well, have you ever borne false witness? Have you ever slandered anybody? Have you ever sought to destroy someone with your tongue? I mean, destroy their life? Not just cut them down the moment, but ruin them? This is what David brings up these very specific sins because they are the things that led to the man's death. More important than the act of murder itself were the lies and the deceptions and the plotting that led to it. Do not give yourself a pass with the sins of the tongue. What does James say? Are you familiar with James chapter 3? So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Notice boasting, boasting there. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Are you familiar? Have you been on the receiving end of a poisonous tongue? Well, that's easy to recognize. Have you been on the giving end of the poison? Like one of those little poisonous darts, dart frogs, right? I don't know what they do. but They're just little tiny things, but they can kill you. The poison, I don't know if the poison's in their tongue or not. That's just came to my head. I should have researched that, but I didn't. It's, it's their skin? See, that's where I fail my illustrations. I'm not sure what has a poisonous tongue, but we should find out, and I should put that in for the next time I preach this. 
So the question is, have you tamed your tongue? Are you using your tongue for good or for evil? Are you using your tongue to bless others or to destroy others? Christian, how we use our tongue is so vital to our relationship with God and our use of God in his kingdom. The third sin mentioned there is in verse three, you love evil more than good. This man loves evil. He loves evil. The depth and breadth of wickedness is apparent here. He prefers evil. He takes great pleasure in evil. It's one thing to do evil and be ashamed. And we all know what that's like. We know what it's like to sin and to break God's law. We all are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all gone astray. We've all done that. Come back next week. We'll look at that in Psalm 53. But notice, we know what that's like, and we know the shame of sin. But this man apparently has no shame of sin. He has boasting in sin. He prefers evil. He's proud of his evil. It's far worse to glory in our shame and to boast in our evil deeds than to do evil and be ashamed. This man apparently has no conscience. His conscience is seared. He, he loves his evil. He boasts of his evil. He does what is evil. So that's the recitation of the evil man's sins. Now point two, verses five through seven, the judgment of the evil man is rendered. The judgment of the evil man rendered. But... But is a key term in most places in the scripture, but here it is more important. Because the key term but found in verse 5 and also the but found in verse 8 are two very important contrasts. Twice in this song, it signals a change. Gives us our very outline to the sermon. And the term is important because it causes us to ask a question. What is the contrast Something has been said, but God will break you down forever. So what's the contrast? What is the psalmist comparing? Notice the comparison is between verse 1 and verse 5. The evil man is boasting in his evil because he does not fear the judgment of God, but God will break you down forever. You're boasting of evil, but God will break you down. You are building yourself up, but God will tear you down. That's the comparison, and those are the things to keep in mind. So go back to verse uh, to Psalm 36, 1 and 2 that we looked at earlier. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated by God. God won't even know. Nobody will know what I did. God won't know. I will not be judged for this. But what's the scripture say? But God will. You're boasting of evil as if you will never be found out. There will be no judgment. There will be no accountability. But God but God. Sometimes, but God is very encouraging and helpful, but other times, it isn't. And so what's the but? But he shall be eternally destroyed. He boasts in his wickedness, but this evil man, he shall be eternally destroyed. God will break you down forever. Eternal destruction. He will snatch and tear you from your tent like a marauder that snatches his captive in the middle of the night. Doeg will go away to destruction. Doeg will be uprooted from the land of the living like a weed in the garden where the master gardener comes and pulls him up, not just pulling the top off like I do so many times when I'm weeding, but getting all the way down the deep root. He will be uprooted and cast into judgment. 
two illustrations of what's going to happen to this evil man. It's eternal destruction, snatched from this life, uprooted from this life, destroyed forever. Is there no fear of God before your eyes? Do you not fear the God who you will be held accountable to? Do you not fear the judgment of God? If you boast in evil, you have no fear. So fear God and turn from evil. Although we have numerous examples of the truth of this happening in Scripture, in regard to Doeg, we have no follow-through. So at the end of 1 Samuel 22, that's the last time we hear of Doeg, we don't know what happened. But we can know, whenever this song was written, that God's judgment would come for him, if not in this life, in the life to come. And based upon what David writes here, it seems as if there has been a judgment that came, or a judgment that was just about to fall on him, and that this, by faith, we can see that this happened to Doeg. Because it's an instruction psalm. We're instructing the people of God how to think about sin. This is not a psalm that we are to use in evangelism. This is not a song for the the unbeliever. This is a song for the people in the house of God. I mean, they sang weird songs in Jewish worship, didn't they? Can you imagine this? You know, the choir gets up and sings this song. And that's what they were doing. Because God's people need to be reminded of what happens to evil men. We need to be reminded so that we fear the Lord and hate evil. So Charles Spurgeon says here, pause again. Pause again, Selah. Pause again and behold the divine justice proving itself more than a match for human sin. Pause in your singing. Take a breath. Let the instruments play while you think about what God just said. God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Let that sink in. So what's the judgment? He shall be eternally destroyed. Secondly, in judgment, we see that he shall be an object lesson. The evil man shall be an object lesson. The righteous shall see what happens to the evil man and fear. This is the instruction part of the psalm, just like what I was talking about. When the righteous see what happens to the wicked, we will fear what? We'll fear God. That's that's unspoken, but it's there. The righteous shall see and fear. Shall fear judgment? Of course we shall, shall fear judgment. But more than that, we shall fear God. It's more important that you fear God than fear judgment. But I know what it's like to fear judgment more than I fear God. Do you? Just wait until your dad gets home. Just wait until your dad gets home. How does that ruin your whole day? You know, if that's spoken at like 9 a.m., dad gets home after 5, it's like, ah, the rest of the day is ruined. It wasn't long ago we were dealing with some issue in the car, and the boys were all chipper. I think it was on a Sunday. They were probably messing around in church or something. I think that's what it was. Anyway, but you can see there's a seat between them now, so you can see we've dealt with that one. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I don't usually throw my kids under the bus, but here, here we go. Anyway, we're talking about that, and everyone's joyful and laughing, and then all of a sudden we had, we had the moment, and uh, something, I, I got really irritated about it, and I, I, I talked to them, because it would have been a Sunday, this, yeah, it's coming back to me now, you know, it's just like slowly coming back. 
they had been goofing around during the song service, and, and mom had poked me, and I had warned them about their behavior before I got up to preach. And then they mess around during the service. So in the car, I said, don't you remember what I said to you before this? I mean, we talk about this regularly. I said it before I went up, and you still kept doing it? I said, what were you thinking when you were doing that? Were you thinking about what would happen to you if you disobeyed? And what'd they say? Nope. There was no fear of dad before their eyes. There's no fear. So then I said to them, and we hadn't even, I mean, we were like two minutes down the road. <laughs> I said, well, we'll deal with this when we get home. And we're headed to Wendy's for lunch. Why do you think I did that? I wanted them to soak in the fear of dad all lunch. All lunch. Because I wanted the lesson to soak in. Fear dad when he says, don't do that, because something's going to happen. Now, I can't remember what happened. I think Tracy uh, interposed on their behalf and said, are you going to spank them when we get home? Now, it's always, which paddle do I use? There's that as well. And, and I waited for a minute. I said, well, I don't want to ruin my lunch. I don't care about ruining their lunch. I don't want to ruin my lunch. Because they weren't saying a word. They're going like, to sit at lunch. It's like, <laughs> just waiting for the spanking to come. I said, you're not going to be spanked. But and then we went through that. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Woo! You know, <laughs> sentence reduced. And uh, we're all happy and joyful again, joking around. That's the kind of idea where we fear judgment more than we fear the authority. Now, we fear the authority because the authority does bring judgment, but we should not just fear hell and the punishment that comes with hell. We should fear God because of what he can do. But we fear God. Don't just fear punishment. That's not a fear of God. That's just a fear of consequences. We want to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Now, the question here is, as you listen to this song of instruction, as this song is being preached, not sung, but preached in this message, are you going to learn something today? Besides what happened to my kids? Like, you won't remember anything for the message. Like, something, Pastor, the stories get stuck in your head. Are you going to learn from others' example? This is a song of instruction of what happens to someone else. That's the best lesson to learn, isn't it? Do you like learning all the hard lessons yourself? Or would you rather learn from the consequences of the hard lessons to others? So I'm in a storytelling mode. Let's tell some more stories. This one is actually in my notes, by the way. I have an older brother, and he was bad. He was wicked, and uh, you can send him the copy of this message. He knows it. By God's grace, he's repentant and uh, been forgiven and is now a pastor. <laughs> so it's always fun to tell stories about him because he's, he's now serving the Lord and probably preaching right now as we speak. But anyway, he was bad because as a teenager, actually it started way before that, but especially became fruitful in his teenage years. He was, a, he was a, a young man, a boy who loved to lie. He loved to deceive. He loved to do those things. And he told lies all the time. And uh, just weird lies and unimportant lies, but also bad lies. And in connected to his lying was his deceitfulness. He started sneaking around and doing things he wasn't supposed to as a teenager. And he would lie and say, I'll be up at school after uh, school practicing my jumping. He was a high jumper and on the track team. I'll be up there practicing my high jump. And so one day, my dad happened to pop in at the school after school was over to do something, and he went into the gymnasium where the high jump was being practiced, and guess who wasn't there practicing his high jump? My brother. Where was my brother? He's off with his girlfriend somewhere. <laughs> guess who got in trouble? 
But this continued because it happened multiple times and multiple occasions where he was lying to, to, to deceive my parents. And by the time he graduated high school, their relationship had so broken down that as my parents were driving him to Faith Baptist Bible College to be a freshman, you did recognize the irony there, right? Faith Baptist Bible College. They were driving him six hours from Missouri to Iowa. You know how many words they spoke to each other on the six-hour drive to Bible College for freshman year? The big goose egg. That's how bad things had gotten. Now, I'm two years younger than my brother, two and a half years by age, but two years in school. And so what was I watching all those years growing up? I was watching how my brother's lies and deceitfulness destroyed him and destroyed his relationship. And I committed, and I remember this vividly. I remember saying, I will not do those things. I will learn. from. I don't want those consequences. I don't want that kind of relationship. Now, God got a hold of my brother at Bible College as a freshman year. He repented, asked forgiveness, and their relationship was restored. And we praise God for all that stuff. But you don't have to remember that part. Just remember how bad my older brother is. And uh, for years, I got plenty of stories. But will you learn from others' example? The best part about not being the oldest child is you can learn a lot from all the sins of your elder sibling. Learn the lessons. I will tell you this. Either you will learn the lessons by watching others, or God will teach them to you firsthand. I mean, how many times? How many times can we learn from Scripture? Can we learn from examples in Scripture? It doesn't have to be a sibling. Can we learn from the example of Scripture and learn this? This man is an object lesson for all of time and eternity. Doag the Edomite is an example. He will always be an example of an evil man and what happens to evil men. All these thousands of years, believers will read this and learn. Will we? Will we learn? Or do you want to be the next object lesson for God? But notice also, he shall be an object of derision. Verse 7, he shall be an object of derision. The righteous will fear God and will laugh at him. The righteous will laugh at this man. What will the righteous say? They will say, look at the man who refused to make God his refuge, but made his wealth his refuge. Look at the man who sought shelter in his own destruction. Look at the man whose shelter destroyed him. This man had sought refuge in his wealth, and his refuge led to his own destruction. Spurgeon says, this is a time of solemn contempt. Matthew Henry says, they shall laugh at him, not with a ludicrous, but rational, serious laughter, as he that sits in heaven shall laugh at him, Psalm 2, verse 4. This is not a laughing and a pointing at someone, ha, 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 look what happened to them. This is a laugh of mockery. But it's a serious laugh, a rational laugh, a laugh of someone who gets the lesson and understands it. There's a place for for mockery in the life of a Christian, but be very careful that you don't laugh and then make the same mistakes. Don't laugh and cause the same sins and, and, and do those same things. What was his sin? What led to his destruction? First of all, he trusted in wealth. He trusted in wealth. We don't know why or how, but did Saul pay him off for for what he did? Was he allowed to plunder what he didn't kill in Nob? But whatever it is, he wasn't trusting in the protection and provision of God. He wasn't trusting in the protection or provision of God. He was trusting in his wealth. He took care of things himself. But the very ledge that he took shelter under in the storm is the ledge that caved in on him and ended his life. What did that look like in real time? We do not know. But here in poetic form, his refuge became his destruction. If you trust in wealth, if you trust in anything other than God, what you trust in will be the means of your own destruction. 
Will you learn that lesson? Don't trust in wealth. It will destroy you. And his wealth destroyed him. If your refuge is not the one true and living God, if your refuge is not the Lord Jesus Christ, it will destroy you. There is only one refuge that saves. 47 times in the Psalms, the word refuge is used. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Next one. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Psalm 7.1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 16.1. Psalm 18.30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Are you getting it? Well, let's say some more. Psalm 25, verse 20. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Who is your refuge? Next slide. Psalm 31, 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Who do you turn to? Where do you run? Where do you go for protection? Where do you go for security? Who or where do you turn? God is my, you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. In your, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Do you see it over and over and over? And did you recognize, go back, did you recognize the New Testament quote there at the end of Psalm 31? Into your hand I commit my spirit. Who said that? Jesus Christ on the cross speaking to his Father. Who was Christ's refuge in his time of suffering? The Father. He ran to his Father. God the Father was Christ's refuge on the cross. He committed his spirit and what happened to Christ? He was redeemed. God is our refuge because God is the only one who redeems. Only God can save. The one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. Who saves? Who is the only God who saves? Who is the only one that will save you? Who is the only one that will protect you? Who is the only one you can turn to for redemption? This is your salvation. If you want to, turn to Hebrews 6 with me. Page 1,279 if you're using a Bible. Leave your finger here in Psalm 52. We'll come back. We're going to turn to Hebrews for just a minute. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus is this refuge. Jesus is our rock of refuge. And we don't just see that the, the promises in the Old Testament. We see the truth of it reiterated in the New Testament. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So God had sworn, and he had sworn by himself. Why? Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, Abraham's heirs and to Abraham himself, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed his purpose with an oath. But the oath was he swore by himself, so that by two unchangeable things, one, by the character of God, in which it is impossible for God to lie, and by the promise of God, we have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has promised to save his people. God has promised by himself to complete his work. And there's no one greater that God can swear by. He can't swear by something more important because he's the greatest thing. He swears by himself. It's an unchangeable promise. You have two parts to the promise. So that we who have fled for refuge in the almighty God might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And what is that? Oh, look at verse 19. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Who entered into the holy place behind the curtain? Who's the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul? Well, verse 20 leaves it without question. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Your only hope, your only refuge is that Jesus Christ has gone behind the curtain. He, as the Passover lamb and as the high priest, shed his own blood, took his own blood into the Holy of Holies and put it on the Ark of the Covenant and satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of his people once and for all. That's the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. Run to him for refuge. He's the only God who saves. He's the only God who not only saves eternally from your sin, but will save you from the trouble and trials of your life. He is your refuge. Now, point three is this. Where you run for refuge reveals your faith. Are you running to Christ or are you running someplace else? A refuge is a place of safety and security. It's a ledge in a storm. It's a fortress when the army's attacking. It's a place of, of safety and security. Where do you run? A refuge is a place you go for comfort and protection to take care of you in the storms of life. Where do you go when you're scared? Where do you turn when you're afraid? Where do you turn when you're overwhelmed? When life is too much? When you're at the end of your rope? Whatever that is, whoever that is, that is your refuge. Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, as a Christian, I will say this. It will never be perfectly the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us will fail and falter at times to run to Christ, and we will run to other things. Where are you tempted to run instead of Christ? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it adultery or fornication or pornography? Is it work? Is it exercise? Is it hobbies? Is it TV? Is it video games? Is it wealth? What is your security? What is your rock of refuge? Where do you go? Recognize your temptations. Repent of giving in to those temptations and turn to Christ every time for all of your needs. He is the only refuge. Where are you struggling today? Now the psalm ends with another but, verse 8. This is the comparison of the righteous man revealed. The comparison of the righteous man. First of all, the evil man boasts in evil, but God will destroy him. But I am not that wicked man. Not every person is wicked. So we are not the wicked men. We are the righteous. We are the righteous man revealed. David writes, I am like the olive tree in the house of God. I am not like the evil man who is destroyed. I am the righteous man who is preserved, protected, and blessed. If you want to, you can turn to Psalm 1. If not, just write it down, look at it later. Blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This righteous man, what will happen to him? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. I am not like that evil man. We're not like that wicked man. We go to the house of the Lord. We're planted by streams of water. We're planted by God. We prosper. We are blessed. We're preserved and protected as we trust in God as his people. Notice where that trust is enumerated. Verse 9, I trust in the steadfast love of God. The righteous man trusts in God's steadfast love. This song is all about what your trusted refuge is. What is David's refuge? The steadfast love of God. Notice how this connects. He says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. That's his refuge, God's steadfast love. Notice the evil man's boast, verse 1, and notice how immediately David points us to where his boast should be. You boast in evil, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. And you say it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit until you get to the end and you see what David's trying to show you. It's the steadfast love of God that is your refuge. And he trusts in God's steadfast love. The object of your trust makes all the difference. The object of your trust makes an eternal difference. You can trust in wealth or you can trust in Christ. And that makes all the difference. Secondly, he thanks God for all God's done. God is the one who has done it. God has saved, redeemed, protected, preserved, and prospered his people. God gets all the thanks because God gets all the glory. God has done it. And then he ends with his final testimony. He waits for God. I will wait for your name for it is good. This is what it means to trust. You wait on your refuge because you trust Christ does not always, God does not always show up in the way we want, when we want, how we want. So you turn to Christ in your time of need, you run to him, you cry out to him, and you wait for deliverance, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and you keep crying out, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come. What are you tempted to do as you wait? If God won't save me, I will turn to another refuge. I will run someplace else. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. But the man who trusts in the Lord waits all the way through. So many times in the Old Testament, you'll see God's people. They'll be waiting, they'll cry out to the Lord and something doesn't happen, and then they will turn to Egypt or they'll turn someplace else. They'll turn to other people for help and God will continue to rebuke them and then bring judgment because they will not turn to him. How long will you wait? You'll wait until God shows up because he's your only hope. And I also like the last part. I will wait for your name for it is good. Where will I wait? In the presence of the godly. Isn't it much better to wait for the Lord together? In the presence of people who will encourage you, who will strengthen you, who will pray for you, who will help you, who will remind you. You came today and you were reminded that God is your refuge. We sang it. We sang it loudly. We sang it repeatedly. Christ is the one who saves. That encouragement to, to remind you so that you turn to Christ, you turn to your refuge. Wait for the Lord here. Does that mean that this is the place you come Monday when you want to wait for the Lord or Tuesday or Wednesday? No. There's nothing special with this room. 
But the idea is this. You wait for the Lord with the godly. You come to church every Sunday and you wait for the Lord together. And you wait for the Lord at home as you live your life, but then you gather and you wait. So many people are hurting. They're they're in fear of their life. They have so many struggles. And what do they do when they're hurting, when they're scared, when things are hard? What do they do? They stay home. They avoid people. They shelter in their room. They, they They do all the wrong things instead of coming to meet with God's people so that they might have the encouragement of the godly, the reminder of the songs, the encouragement of the word. They, they don't go, and they miss out. They miss this. They miss us. Wait for God in the presence of the godly. The time you need the church the most is when you are tempted to not go. <laughs> like, I just want to stay home. I don't want to see people. I'm hurting. That's when you need it the most. Don't miss out. Don't ever miss out. Don't ever choose to be outside the presence of the godly when they gather. Do not forsake the assembling because of how important it is for you and how important it is for others for you to be there, to be this for them when they need it. The question and conclusion is this. Will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your refuge? Will you? Will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your refuge? Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? I trust you have. If not, I trust you will. Let's pray together. Father, you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit are our only refuge. You are our only hope. Your Son is our only Savior. The price he paid on the cross of Calvary is the only price that buys our redemption. There's nowhere else for us to turn that will help. Yet we turn so many times to so many other places. We struggle so much, Lord. And yet you are our rock, our fortress, our refuge, our hope. And so we, we profess again today that it is the steadfast love of God that we are trusting in. We are turning to you to be our refuge. We are turning to you to be our hope. We ask that you would minister to us as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen.